So about 2,000 years ago, a Roman poet by the name of Ovid wrote a bunch of different poems, and one of the poems he writes is a story about this couple named Philemon and Bacchus, married couple, Philemon and Bacchus. And the story is that there are the two of the gods, uh, depending on if you go Greek, it's, if, if it's the Greek gods, then it's uh, Zeus and Hermes, or if it's the Roman gods, then it's Jupiter and uh, I believe Mars, if, if I remember correctly. Uh, but these two gods, they, they come down to earth in human disguise. They make themselves disguised as human, and they go around to this neighborhood, basically, looking for people to see who's going to, who's going to show them hospitality. So these, these gods pretend to be humans. They walk around, and they say, okay, who's going to show us hospitality in this neighborhood? And every door they knock on, they get turned away by all of these people until they show up at the home of this uh, lovely older couple who's uh, relatively poor in comparison to everybody else, Philemon and Bacchus. And Philemon and Bacchus invites these two gods in disguise uh, into their home, and they, they give them the best of what they have. And, and when they realize that they're gods, they, you know, they try to give them even more, and the gods say, well, because you have been gracious to us, we're going to take you with us. Everybody else is going to be destroyed. Uh, so this was one of the ancient stories about how the gods would interact with humans. And it's a story basically where the gods sort of test humanity. They come down as a test, as a trial to see who's going to behave rightly, who's going to show hospitality, and those who fail the test get destroyed. Uh, I tell you this because last week we started a new sermon series that we're calling God Blank Us. God Blank Us. And we're exploring this idea of, of the relationship between the divine and humanity because the, the question uh, this, the question of this relationship has been the central question of all of religion since the beginning of time. How, do, how does God or how do the gods or how does the divine, how does it relate to humanity? Uh, and so that's what we're going to explore in this message. And so last week, I, I took you sort of on a tour of different religious concepts. We looked at ancient mythology where the gods just sort of used humans. They, they created humans to do the work they didn't want to do. And then, you know, if the humans took care of the gods, then maybe the gods would take care of the humans, you know, if the sacrifices were right. We looked at ancient Greek, or ancient Greek philosophy where God sort of created everything. It's this perfect divine being, but very, very distant uninvolved in the affairs of humanity. We, we looked at systems where God is a judge of humans and, and basically doesn't get involved other than to, to render judgments right or wrong, or, or systems where God is like a cosmic genie, where if you have the right amount of faith, or if you have the right formula, or if you just do things exactly the right way, then God will bless you and prosper you. Um, but I told you last week that 2,000 years ago, there was a brand new concept introduced to the world in terms of how the divine interacts with humankind. And, I, and we started last week by talking about the story of a young Jewish man named Joseph. A young Jewish man named Joseph who had discovered that his wife had become pregnant, or his fiance had become pregnant, and he wasn't the father. Joseph, who his fiance became pregnant, he wasn't the father. And so when he discovered this, he's trying to figure out, what, what am I supposed to do? And he thinks, well, you know, I mean, according to the law, I can, I can have her stoned, but that doesn't seem like a very, you know, that's not a very compassionate thing to do. So he says, okay, I'm just going to divorce her quietly and send her away. And, and uh, Matthew, who is uh, an ancient writer, one of Jesus' disciples, who tells this story, he tells us that as Joseph was considering this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David... Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, 
because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. In other words, Joseph, Mary is telling you the truth. She hasn't stepped out on you. She hasn't been playing around. The the baby that's growing inside of her really is from God. She's telling you the truth. And it it would probably take divine intervention for me to believe that kind of a story, right? I'd probably need an angel to show up to tell me that if that was you know, if I had discovered something similar. Um, So Joseph uh, decides to agree. Here's what the angel says next. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. I told you last week that the name Jesus is uh, the Greek for the Hebrew Joshua, which means God saves. God saves. So what the angel is saying is that somehow in Jesus, God is going to save his people. And Matthew takes this a step further, and he explains this in a way that would have really just gotten people's attention in a really unique way. Here's how Matthew explains what just took place. He says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel which means God with us. God with us. Somehow, in some way, this, this baby that's going to be born from this woman who's conceived by the Holy Spirit, somehow this little child, this baby, is going to be God with us and is going to save people from their sins. We looked a little bit last week at the Gospel of John, another one of the ancient documents that was written by one of Jesus's followers. And in the beginning of of his Gospel, John has this this eloquent prologue sort of describing this process. And here's what he says in in this very literary language. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. Everything came into being through the Word, and without the Word, nothing came into being. Now, I told you last week that this word, word, in Greek is logos, and and the the concept of the logos has a lot of different meanings to different people in the ancient world. For For the Stoics, for the Greeks, logos is like this divine creative logic that that's this this like divine perfect reason that's in that's sort of out there and distant, but maybe sort of created things and is in some essence uh, the, the essence of what God is, according to the Greeks. For the Jews, they would have understood word as the creative force from God. And if you go back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the world, and God said, let there be light, and all of God's creation is done through spoken word, and so somehow this, this word becomes a, a creative force, a self-expression, a creative self-expression of who God is, and so, and, and scholars have gone back and forth and really tried to pin down exactly what logos is here, but the, the, the point is, is that this idea of logos is this divine, impersonal force that had one meaning to the Greeks and another meaning to the Jews, John tells us somehow later in his gospel, a few verses later, he says, this logos, this word, became flesh. This this divine force, this creative self-expression of God, whatever it is, whatever, you know, metaphysically, we can get into that at some point, whatever it was, it became flesh. Scholars talk about this, theologians call this the incarnation Incarnation. I told you last week, you know, uh, if you have chili con carne, that's chili with meat. This is the logos with meat, the logos with flesh becoming human. Not only that, though, John tells us the word, whatever this 
essence is this logos that's, that's with God, but is also somehow God becomes flesh and made his dwelling among us. Made his dwelling among us. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. He says, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. And this is utterly unique. That this is, uh, there's no other story like this that happens before this. This idea of, of, of a divine being somehow taking on human flesh, and not just for a short period of time and not just to trick people, but, but moving into the neighborhood is, is completely unique. There's no other expression of divine human relationship like this anywhere else in the ancient world that we're aware of before Jesus. So I've got a question for you. If you were the divine logos, the creative self-expression of God, and you were to put on some meat, put on some flesh, and move into the neighborhood, where would you move? What neighborhood would you pick? If you were this self-expression creative force of God, and you're going to become human and move into the neighborhood, what neighborhood would you pick? Today, I mean, if you, know, if you want to really make a difference, you'd probably move to D.C., right? Because that's where things happen. Or New York City, right? That's, you know, that's where things happen. Or maybe L.A., right? You, know, if you move to where, where there's lots of places for influence. If you were in the first century, if you became flesh in the first century and you wanted to make a difference, you, you might move to Rome because the Ro- Rome was the center of where everything was happening. Right? Rome was where Caesar was, and it was the, it was the capital of the world, basically, at the time. Or, you know, if you're, if you're the, the Jewish God, a self-expression of God, and you become flesh, you move to Jerusalem because that's where the temple is. That's where God lives, right? That's where the high priests are. That's where, that's where everything happens in Jewish religion. That's where you move. But that's not where Jesus shows up to. Do you know, you know where Jesus shows up? Where Jesus, what neighborhood Jesus moves into? It begins with an N. Nazareth. Nazareth. Do you know what people said about Nazareth in the first century? There you go. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? It's literally what they said. It's in your Bible. John chapter 1, verse 46. That's how people talked about Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? I won't ask you which city you might equate that with now. But that's where the Word made flesh decides to move into, this place where everybody looks and says, there's nothing good can come from there. Now, if you were this Logos made flesh, and you moved into the neighborhood, what kinds of people would you hang out with? You are the the self-expression of God Almighty become flesh. You can hang out with anybody, right? Who would you hang out with? Would you hang out with Caesar? Would you hang out with with the kings, right? King Herod? Would you hang out with the high priests? That that would make sense, right? This is who you would hang out with if you're the self-expression of God become flesh. You'd hang out with the people who could make a difference, the influencers, right? The priests, the pastors, the royalty, the rich, the famous. Here's who Jesus hangs out with. Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 and 11, and the message says this. When Jesus was eating supper at Matthew's house, a lot of disreputable characters came and joined them. I love that, disreputable characters. People you probably don't want your kids hanging out with, right? When the Pharisees, the Pharisees are the religious leaders, the, the, the you know, hoity-toity religious leaders, when the Pharisees saw, they had a fit 
and they lit into Jesus' followers. What kind of example is this from your teacher acting cozy with crooks and riffraff? So we have this this creative self-expression of God, this this, this divine force that was with God and somehow was God who puts on flesh, moves into the neighborhood, into a place that the people say nothing good can come from there. And he hangs out with a bunch of good-for-nothing people. I put it this way. The word became flesh, moved into a good-for-nothing neighborhood, and hung out with good-for-nothing people. Not what you would expect when the word, when, when the divine self-expression of God becomes flesh. Why? Why in the world... Would God with us hang out in those places and with those people? Why? Jesus tells us. When Jesus heard the the religious leaders make this, this criticism, this accusation, here's what he says. He says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so Jesus, who we're told is in somehow, in some way, God with us, who is somehow, in some way, the Logos made flesh, tells us that he comes not to those who already have it together, but to those who are struggling. And he takes this concept of sin, which some people saw as just this offense against God, and Jesus says, I don't think of it like that. I think of sin as as a sickness that needs to be healed. And he says, imagine a doctor, right, who, who refuses to see sick people and says, hey, hey, you know, come and, come and see me once you, once you start feeling better. Seeing the mess that humanity had made for themselves, he doesn't show up and test people and punish the ones who fail the test. He shows up to heal and to restore in another place, in, Luke, in, in Luke's gospel, Luke is another one of the gospel writers. He's an ancient physician who tells us that he investigated carefully all of the different sources and puts together this story of Jesus' life that can be reliable, can be trusted. Here's what he says. Uh, he quotes Jesus as saying this, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek And to save the lost. Son of man is another expression for Jesus. He doesn't come to to damn or condemn or judge or punish. He comes to seek and to save. In another place, here's what Jesus says about himself. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, he says this. The son of man came not to be served, but to what? Serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. Go back to the story of Philemon and Bacchus. These gods show up in disguise not to heal, not to seek, not to save, not to help people who had fallen into a mess, but to test. And the ones who failed the test, they punished. They came not to be served, they came not to be served, but I'm sorry, they came not. They came to be served, not to serve. There we go. They came to be served, not to serve. And the people who served them are the ones that got taken care of. Here, Jesus, who is God with us in some sense, tells us that he came 
not to be served, but to serve. This is radically unique in all of ancient religions. Nobody else has, has a, a divine being that shows up among people to be the one who serves, not the one who's served. And not only that, but to give his life as a ransom for many. What we see in Jesus is a king who serves his subjects and dies for them, not who makes his subjects serve him and die for him. He takes the entire script and he flips it upside down. And Jesus shows us what God is like. Here's how some of his earliest followers described the reason for his coming. In in the book of Hebrews, which was uh, an ancient book written to a group of Jewish Christians to explain the uniqueness of Jesus. Here's how the author of Hebrews describes it. He says, Jesus shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him that holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants, humans. For this reason, the author says, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people." Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. God with us shows up not to punish, but to help. The Apostle Paul, who was one of the uh, early Christians, became one of the the, uh, most prominent leaders in the early church, wrote about half the New Testament or so. Here's, what, here's how Paul summarizes it in a single sentence. He says this, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to what? Save. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul says, of whom I am the worst. If you remember, Paul was previously a persecutor of the church. He began as somebody who was persecuting the church, leading Christians away to their death, and he has this encounter with Jesus, and he comes to understand that the way that he had understood God all along had not been right, and when he finally gets a grasp of who Jesus really is, his entire world is flipped upside down, and he devotes the rest of his life to spreading this message, this good news of Jesus as the rightful, true Lord and King of the earth who came to save sinners. Not to judge, not to condemn, not to test, not to use, not any of the other things that we see these gods in in ancient mythology and other ancient religions doing. Jesus, who we're told is God with us, The word in a bod, right? The word made flesh came into the world not to judge, not to condemn, not to test or to use us, but to save. We're told that Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us to seek, to save, to serve, to heal to help. This is utterly unique. There is no other 
story like this before Jesus comes into the world. There is no other understanding of God who enters into the mess of his people, who moves into the neighborhood and puts on flesh, not to judge or condemn, but to seek and to save and to serve and to heal and to help. So in a world where everybody has these ideas about how, how God or the gods interact with humans and where you're, you're taught to be afraid of God, where you're taught that you have to please or placate God, where you're taught that you have to make sure how you, how you don't take a wrong step or God might spite you if, you if you don't show hospitality to the right person, we see that God in Jesus steps into the mess. He moves into the neighborhood and he doesn't blame us for the mess. He helps us clean up the mess. And so I want this, as we, as we consider this, as we go through this series, I want this to, to shape our understanding, our view of God. Because I don't know what everybody's background in here is, but some of us, you know, even if you come from some Christian backgrounds, you're taught that God is this angry judge, just waiting for you to, to mess up so that he can strike you down, right? And you better not mess up because God's watching Right? You ever hear something like that? But Jesus comes and he shows us what God is really like. The author of Hebrews in the, in the beginning of the, the letter tells us that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. Paul tells us in another place that Jesus is the image of the unseen God. John tells us in another place that Jesus is the one who makes known God to us. In other words, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. There's lots of concepts of what God is like out there, and there's lots of philosophical ideas about what God is like or must be like, but Jesus comes and he says, he's, he's meeting with his followers in the Gospel of John, and he says, look, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Whoever wants to come to the Father must come through me. And he says, if you've known me, you've known the Father. And then one of his disciples named Philip says, Jesus, just show us the Father and we'll be content. And Jesus looks at Philip and he says, Philip, do you, do you still not get it? If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know how God relates and views humankind, don't look anywhere else except Jesus. And we see Jesus who comes not for the ones who already have it together. He comes not for the ones who... who, who don't do anything wrong. He, he, he comes to the people who need help. The ones who are sinners. Now, if like me, you know that you're a sinner, if you know that you, you, you need help, if you know that you just you, you don't live up to who you know you can be, if you know that you've made mistakes and you've done things that have hurt people and you've done them on purpose and you, and you know that you, there's, there's more potential to life and you know that you're a sinner, this is the best news in the whole world. Because Jesus shows us that we have a God not who's, who's waiting for us to mess up and judge us for not being perfect, but a God who enters into the mess and comes alongside us and teaches us a better way. 
And as we're going to see in a few weeks, fills us with his spirit and empowers us to live into our full potential. Now, if, if you don't think you're a sinner, if you've, if you've never messed up, if you've never hurt anybody, if you think that you're as good as you can be, well, then maybe this, maybe this doesn't mean all that much to you. Maybe, you know, Jesus as God with us coming into the neighborhood, maybe that doesn't mean all that much to you. But if, like me, you know that there is something inside of you that just doesn't always get it right and you know that you need help, this, now I, we, we can be free to approach God with boldness and ask for help, unafraid that God, is, we, we don't need to hide our mistakes from God. We don't need to put on a, a false facade and pretend like we have everything together. We can open our arms wide and say, here I am. Flaws in all, help me. Save me, rescue me, restore me, heal me. The way that we think about God will shape everything that we do. That's why this is so important. That's why we have to get this right. That's why if you want to know what God is like, you have to look at Jesus. Because Jesus is Emmanuel. He's God with us. Not to condemn, not to judge, but to seek, to save, to serve, to heal, and to help. And I think that's the greatest news in the whole world. So we're going to take a minute now and we're going to share in communion together, which is just so appropriate with this series. Because as we partake in communion, this was uh, Jesus on the night before he was betrayed. He was sharing, he was sharing a meal with some of his closest friends. And uh, he, he gathered them together. And as, as they were eating, he knew that this was going to be his last meal with them before he was crucified. And so he wanted to give them something to remember him by. And so as they were eating, he took the bread and he, he broke the bread and he said, this, this is my body, which is given for you. And a little bit later in the evening, he took the cup. They always drank wine at their meals and he passed the cup around. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. A covenant is, is, a, is an arrangement. It's a relationship. It's an agreement. He says, this is the new, new relationship that God is establishing with you through my blood for the forgiveness of sins. And then he says something really unique. He says, do this. As often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. Paul tells us later, for as often as you eat this bread and as often as you drink this cup, you do declare the Lord's death until he comes. And so Jesus gave them this tangible reminder that he knew that they were going to have bread and they were going to have wine at every meal. And, and, and when I read this, I don't think Jesus meant as often as you gather together and take communion, you know, once a month or once a year or once a week in your various churches. I think Jesus meant every time you're gathered together and you eat. I think that's what Jesus meant, as often as you do this. Whenever you're gathered together, every time you have bread in your hands, every time you have a cup, I want you to look in that and remember what I've done for you. And when Jesus does that, he, he, he's, he's talking about three different time periods. He's, he gives us something to look back to, to remember what was done for us, that God with us became flesh, took our sins on him. All of the, all of the, the, the things that our, our sins, all of the badness that our sins do, he took that upon himself so that we didn't have to bear that any longer. And, and so we look back and we see what was done for us, that God in his love gave his son for us because he loved us. Right? That's, what, that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, that even while we were enemies, God's love uh, he, he gave his son 
and died for us. We look back and see what was done for us. And then we, we take this bread and this cup together, and it reminds us that we are unified together as the body of Christ. It, it, it reminds us that, that Christians across the world this morning, today, in lots of different traditions, all of them are going to be taking communion in some form or another. Some, uh, across the world, there's going to be Christians who are doing this very same thing. And it reminds us that we're united in this spiritual body. And it points us forward to the future. It tells us that, that this, this is not the end. That this is not all there is, but that at some point, the same Jesus who came for us once and died for our sins is going to come back, and he's going to set everything right. He's going to restore all that's been lost and heal all that's been broken. And so we look back, and we're thankful. We look forward, and we're inspired. to. We look present, and we're inspired to give our lives in service to one another. And we look forward in hope, knowing that God will keep his promise. He will restore what's been lost. And so this, this communion, as we take this bread, as we take this cup, it is a reminder that God even still is with us. As we're going to talk about in a few weeks, we believe that God dwells within us and among us as the body of Christ. Jesus told his followers, where two or three are gathered together, there am I in the midst of you. It's, it's, not that Jesus, it's not that God came and then left, that God is still now with his spirit present in us and with us to lead us and to guide us and to help us be to the world what Jesus was to us. So here's how we do communion in this church. I believe in open communion. I believe that the Lord's table is open to anybody. And so if you want to partake, if you want to, to, to taste and see that the Lord is good, I invite you to come forward. You don't have to be a member of this church. You don't even have to necessarily believe in Jesus. But if you want to come and get a taste... I invite you to come forward and take the bread and the cup. So I'll come forward, and uh, you can line up and take the bread and the cup, head back to your seats, and then once we've all got it, uh, we'll take it together. Um, but while you're coming up, I'll invite Mandy forward, and she'll sing our final song. God is with us. It's such an amazing thing to know that God is with us and his love is reckless. It's not carefully placed on those who give him love in return. It's a giant blanket that he just throws over humanity and loves us all. He loves every single one of us and gives every single one of us value. If we are his flock, when one walks away, he leaves the 99 to go save the one. And it makes no sense until that one is you and you feel the love of God.
couldn't earn it and I don't deserve it still you give yourself away oh the overwhelming never-ending reckless love of God shadow you won't light up mountain you won't climb up coming after me there's no wall you won't kick down lie you won't tear down coming after me there's no shadow you won't light up mountain you won't climb up coming after me there's no wall you won't kick down lie you me. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. Deserve it, still you give your 
God, I thank you that you are a God who seeks, a God who saves, a God who chases us down and, and searches for us, not to punish us or to condemn us, but to heal us and to restore us and to save us. I thank you for this bread, for what it represents, for the body of Christ, for the stripes that that body endured to take our sins, for the cup, for the blood that was shed so that we could experience forgiveness and newness of life. I pray that we would remember as we take this bread that we are the body of Christ. We've been united together as one. We would find unity, that we would remember what's been done for us through the forgiveness of sins, that we would extend forgiveness to others. I pray that this moment as we taste this tangible reminder of your love for us, that we would be inspired to give our lives in service to one another, to love our enemies as you loved us when we were still enemies, and that we would be rooted in hope that you will be faithful to your promise, that this is not the end, but that you will come and you will heal and restore all things. Until then, may we find strength in your promise, and may this bread and this cup be a tangible reminder of your reckless, never-ending, never-failing love for us. In Jesus' name. blood of Christ shed for you. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.